from deep inside your audio device of choice. May I compliment you on your audio device of choice today, ladies and gentlemen? It it, uh, it makes it slims you. Um, first of all, before we do anything else, and of course I've already done something else, but we'll uh, let that go. We have news of the godly. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Today, a focus on Cardinal George Pell of the Roman Catholic Church, formerly uh, head of the diocese in Melbourne, Australia, where there were uh, many, 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 many allegations of child sexual abuse in the uh, under the reign of his predecessor, uh, not so many under uh, his supervision. But he's now got a new job. He's Pope Francis's finance czar. Who knew? Who did they say in uh, on career day that you could be the Pope's finance czar? Really? You had a better counselor than I did. But he's coming under intense scrutiny, according to the Associated Press. He's ruffled feathers at the Vatican as he seeks to impose order on its unruly finances. Yes, just like you and me, the Vatican has unruly finances. Um, the AP quotes an Italian newspaper, L'Espresso, I'll have a double, that Cardinal Pell's e- economy secretariat, that's not the horse, that's the bureaucracy in his uh, department, had run up half a million dollars in expenses in the first six months of its existence. That total includes computers and printers, but also a $2,500 bill from a famed clergy tailor, Gamarelli. That's right. Tailored to the clergy, ladies and gentlemen. The expenditures are notable given that Pell has instituted a spending review across the Vatican to ensure that any excess money is spent on the poor. Resistance to Pell from the largely Italian Vatican bureaucracy has been growing steadily. Spiked last month after he boasted he'd discovered hundreds of millions of dollars, or euros in that case, that had been tucked away in accounts off the Vatican balance sheet. Oh, in fact, the money was well known and was purposely kept off the books. Much of it set set aside for use as reserves for funding shortfalls. Rainy fund, mattress money. The leak of Pell's receipts to the Italian newspaper, as well as other documents detailing Cardinal's complaints about him, was clearly aimed at discrediting him, harking back to the VatiLeaks affair that badly tarnished the last year of... uh, Pope Benedict's papacy. So people inside the Vatican leaking against Cardinal Pell because he's... But we do know one thing about him. He likes the free market system. He uh, has launched a spirited defense of the system, according to the Financial Times, countering the perception that the Catholic Church under Pope Francis has turned against business. Pell told a conference hosted by the Global Foundation, they're nice people, in Rome, that, quote, no better model is available at the moment than market economies, citing their capacity to rejuvenate after the Great Depression. Don't you feel rejuvenated right about now? Me too. And their failure to produce the massive alienation predicted by Karl Marx. Just ask Bernie and Donald. Quote, I like to quote Maggie Thatcher, who pointed out that if the Good Samaritan had been without capital... He could not have paid for the care of the man who was beaten and robbed on the road to Jericho, he said. 
We may have too much sugar in our society, such as consumerism, but we're not being poisoned by deserts of salt. Vatican experts agreed, or argued, sorry, the Cardinal's speech didn't necessarily represent a softening in the Catholic Church's tone. His words were unlikely to have been authorized by the Pope or his inner circle, although Pope Francis picked him to lead the economic portfolio. <laughs> the economic portfolio. I know. It keeps amazing me. I'm, that's what keeps me young, my capacity to remain amazed. Uh, but the Pope and Cardinal Pell are known to be far apart on other issues. For example, Cardinal Pell is known as a climate change skeptic. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of Hello, Welcome to the Show.
from New Orleans, Louisiana, where just last night, the first two serious, uh, well, eh, there's one parade on, on January 6th, 12th night, but the first two parades of this part, the, the, the fat part of carnival season, rolled through the French Quarter and adjoining neighborhoods the way they used to. One of them, well, both of them actually uh, redolent of piquant satire, and one of them particularly um, boasting raunchiness beyond belief. From, I say, New Orleans, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. I'm, I, I, can you tell that I'm happy it's carnival time? Can you tell that it's... What a relief to be here and in the middle of this again. But now... News of the Warm, won't you? Award-winning Muse of the Warm. Need I say? Yes, I do. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Ooh, listen to this. Scientists reported this week that last year was the hottest year in recorded history by far. Breaking a record set the year before. Uh, The heat has continued into the new year as roiling weather patterns are all all over the world. In the continental United States, the year was the second warmest on record, punctuated by a December that was both the hottest and the wettest, pardon me, since record-keeping began. One result has been that wave of unusual winter floods on the Mississippi River. Probably noticed that and thought, wait a minute, let me check my calendar. Scientists started... Ooh... Apple's wearable calendar coming soon. Scientists started predicting a global temperature record months ago, in part because of the El Nino, one of the largest in the century, is is dumping an immense amount of heat from the Pacific Ocean into the atmosphere. But the bulk of the record-setting heat, they say, is a consequence of the long-term planetary warming caused by humans. What, are they going to blame the dogs? The whole system is warming up relentlessly, said Gerald Mehe. Sorry, meal. I'll, I'll get it. Just give me a few more chances at it. A scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. It'll take a few more years to know for certain, but the back-to-back records of 2014 and 15 may have put the world back into a trajectory of rapid warming after a period of relatively slower warming dating to the last El Nino way back in 1998. Politicians claiming that greenhouse gases are not a problem ceased on that slow period to argue that global warming stopped then. Statistical analysis, according to the New York Times at least, suggested all along the claims were false and the slowdown was a minor blip in an inexorable trend, possibly caused by a temporary increase in the Pacific Ocean's absorption of heat. Quote, is there any evidence for a pause in the long-term global warming rate? Asks rhetorically Gavin Schmidt of NASA's Climate Science Unit. The answer is no, he says. That was true before last year. It's much more obvious now. Unquoting Gavin Schmidt. Michael Mann not the one you're thinking of. A climate, the climate scientist at Pennsylvania State University calculated if the global climate were not warming, the odds of setting two back-to-back record years would be about one chance in every 1,500 pairs of years. Given the reality the planet is warming, he says the odds become far higher, about one chance in 10. So if you're, gam- you know, sell Apple stock, buy warming stock. You know, bet on warming. Pikas are quite good 
when it comes to keeping warm in cold weather. This adaptation comes at a cost, one that may make it impossible for these small mountain dwellers to cope with climate change. Now, you'd think, as their habitats heat up, pikas would just uh, migrate to cooler, higher parts of the mountain they live on to avoid, you know, the extinction thing. But even if, if, even if they can make the shift upward in altitude, low-altitude pikas might not be able to cope with what else is awaiting them at higher altitudes, i.e., less oxygen. That's what biologists reported at a meeting of the American Society of Naturalists this week. Pikas, I'm going to say pikas. They could be pikas. I'm going to have to ask them. Wait, wait. I'll, I'll wait for feedback from them. They include about 30 species all living at different altitudes have probably evolved special adaptations for living where they do. Researchers compared 10 species from elevations ranging from sea level to 5,000 meters, looking at three genes in the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. These genes code for proteins that help use oxygen to generate chemical energy for the body. The proteins from high-altitude creatures of this species appear to be very efficient at this conversion, explaining how they thrive high up where the air is thin. Low-altitude species have a modified version that seems to generate lots of heat but less fuel for the cell. Great for keeping toasty, but it could make survival that much harder if they have to move to higher altitudes where efficient oxygen use is critical. If the creature falters, it could mean trouble for the entire ecosystem on the Tibetan Plateau. Oh, well, that's why we haven't heard of them. They're the most common small mammal to stay active through winter, providing one of the few foods for snow leopards, weasels, and bears. That's right, they're good eating. Moreover, with up to 60 entrances in each one's underground burrows, they turn parts of the landscape into a sponge that soaks up monsoon rains and slows runoff, helping to keep rivers full year-round. We could just pave those over, and we probably will. And another creature you haven't been thinking about a lot lately, I bet, snowshoe hares. Really? Yeah, okay. Sorry, I was wrong. Snowshoe hares camouflage themselves by changing their coats from brown in summer to white in winter. Guess what their problem's going to be? This is a North Carolina State University study with radio-collared snowshoe hares in Montana. Hares that don't change when the new dates of climate change occur suffer a 7% drop in their weekly survival rate when the snow comes late or leaves early. White hares stand out to predators like light bulbs against their snowless backgrounds. This is one of the most direct demonstrations of mortality costs for a wild species facing climate change, says Scott Mills at North Carolina State's College of Natural Resources. In previous research, we showed climate change is causing snow duration to decrease, Hares have little ability to adjust their molt timing or behaviors to compensate for the mismatch. Here we take the next step. We show that mismatch does indeed kill. This paper shows the mismatch, mismatch costs are severe enough to cause hare populations to steeply decline in the future unless they can adapt to the change, says an author of a journal article in Ecology Letters. The good news for snowshoe hares they don't read the news, of course, but if they did, the good news is the finding that in different individuals molt at different times, so there's enough variability among individuals that natural selection will favor those better saluted, suited for the changing snow conditions. 
Whether evolution through natural selection can save hairs quickly enough is uncertain, given the rate of change, which is, at the moment, shall we say, on the rapid side. Yes, we shall say that. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Can any of us adjust in time? Except for... uh, except for the Republican political establishment, which seems to have adjusted really quickly. Have you seen the, the uh, stories this week that, uh, contrary to the supposition that the Republican establishment, by which, just to counter the assertion by some, that there's no such thing. Elected Republican officials, try that. They, they, I think the, the reason that uh, certain conservatives in that, for example, in that uh, New Republic issue against Trump that came out this week, certain uh, conservatives raised the question, what Republican establishment? Is because, yes, one good answer to that would be elected Republican public officials in Washington, in our national government. But another one would be the guys who fund them. And to avoid that, you know, peeling back that layer of the onion, better to just say, what? What? what?" Anyway, whatever it is, it seems, according to reports this week, to be turning fairly quickly in the direction of, yeah, we could work with Trump. Sure. Uh Uh-huh. Which tells you one of two things. Either people really, in in the Republican establishment, really, I mean really, hate. Ted Cruz, or Donald Trump isn't the threat he'd like you to think he is. The old Kabuki back again for one more run. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol Jr. Well, we've had so much in the way of gloomy news about the Olympics, particularly in Rio and uh, even in Tokyo. This week it's time for some good news. The good news about the Rio Olympics, thanks to Advertising Age, coming up. If you spoke to Seth Winter... Executive VP for sales at NBC Sports Group just a few months ago. He may not have been overly optimistic about advertising sales for the Rio Olympics. It seems in the last few weeks, the tides have changed. Ad sales for the Olympics in Rio starting August 5th are now outpacing those of the London Olympics, Winter said. A couple of months ago, we were behind London. And I wouldn't say we were concerned, but we were behind London. But there were a couple of significant pieces of business that dropped. We are now well ahead of London, unquote. Winter added the activity in the pipeline is also exceeding that of London. He expects NPC Universal will break revenue records exceeding the $1 billion or more they brought in for the London Games. Digital sales are expected to be as much as 50% higher than London, Winter said. Marketers cannot buy digital inventory without making a sizable investment 
on traditional TV because there's so little digital inventory. Mm -hmm. Who knew? Automobiles, technology, consumer packaged goods, insurance, quick service restaurants, and movie studios, among others, have been strong categories. Winter also hopes the Democratic and Republican presidential candidates buy ad times during the games. That's something to look forward to, isn't it? More of the f- marathon, but first this message from... And now we get to the reason why. And why all other things being equal, the International Olympic Committee may even have chosen Rio. The Olympics are being held in Rio, says Ad Age, which is just one hour ahead of the United States East Coast. That means more of the major competitions will be aired live in or around prime time, a potential positive for ratings. NBC recently pulled a 22 overnight rating for an NFL playoff game. Winter expects similar ratings for Olympic Games airing live competition in prime time. Yeah, I know. The, they got that Zika going on there. Don't be pregnant when you go to the Olympics in Rio. And they're in a terrible depression right now and everything. But they're in the right time zone. The Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day.
dark house with the windows painted shut. Remember New York staring outside as reckless winter made its way from Staten Island to the Upper West Side, widening out our streets along the way. From New Orleans, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. The U.S.-led military coalition against IS has called its war against the Islamic State the most precise air campaign in history. Despite having identified 16 civilians mistakenly killed, Another nine injured in airstrikes last summer. This according to the Guardian newspaper in London. Colonel Patrick Ryder, a spokesman for the coalition. There's another job. They didn't tell you about a career day. Coalition spokesman. He told reporters this week he expects additional announcements about civilian casualties in the near future. He said the coalition currently has 14 allegations of casualty incidents left to sift through. The coalition's internal assessments of civilian casualties it has inflicted is markedly lower than other independent estimates during the 18-month air war over Iraq and Syria. Quote, the low numbers here are a testament to our aviators and the mission planners and the incredible amount of effort that goes into not only from the intelligence analysts, but the pre-mission coordination, ensuring that when we conduct these strikes, they're against the intended targets, said the spokesman. This is the most precise air campaign in history, unquote. However, independent estimates put the civilian toll far higher than the 16 deaths CENTCOM has so far announced. Air Wars, a monitoring group, has identified reports of at least 824 civilians killed in coalition strikes. And this week, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, another monitoring organization, claimed Russian airstrikes had killed more than 1,000 civilians just since September, including more than 200 children. Last week, CENTCOM released five cases in which it said civilians had been killed, two of which had not been previously reported by the media, and it released its latest civilian casualty assessment just Friday. It reported five further strikes that had found or killed or wounded civilians within a two-week window last July. Keep looking, keep finding. Meanwhile, not according to The Guardian, but it reported elsewhere, IS has sent out a memo 
saying they may have to cut their troops' salaries in half. We'll see if that pans out. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen. A copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now... He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. News of inspectors general. They, uh... They roam through the... In case you don't know what an inspector general is, if you're like newcomer to the show or something, or newcomer to the, to the earth, uh, they're the guys who, uh, you know, sort of have a, a brief to look through a government agency and see what the hell is going wrong. A Department of Justice inspector general, for example, has officially condemned the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. This follows the report that the uh, DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, had recruited a Transportation Security Administration security screener, one of those airport screeners, to search bags for cash that the drug agency could then confiscate. Yeah, it's a business model, isn't it? Sounds good to me. The very existence of such a partnership highlights broader concerns about the controversial legal practice in this country known as civil asset forfeiture. If you're wondering why there's still a war on drugs after it's been so remarkably successful, one reason might be civil asset forfeiture. Critics say it contorts law enforcement priorities and props up a system of law enforcement agencies policing for profit. Back to the uh, DOJ's inspector general. He concluded the agreement violated drug enforcement agency policy on a number of levels. They got, poli- they got multi-level policies, it seems. W- while the uh, in- inspector general determined that the TSA informant never provided any actionable information to the drug agency, it concluded that plans to pay the agent out of the cash he or she helped seize could have violated individuals' protection against unreasonable searches and seizures if it had led to a subsequent drug enforcement action. The uh, inspector general was, in effect, questioning the propriety of the arrangement in which the TSA agent would use his or her power to tip off the DEA to the presence of cash in traveler's luggage and then receive compensation based on, compensation based on how profitable that information was to the DEA. Uh, civil asset forfeiture has been mentioned on this program before, but not recently. It's a critical source of revenue for law enforcement, uh, increasing radically over the past decade. State and federal agencies now take in hundreds of millions of dollars each year in property and likely more. Cash has emerged as a favorite target for police, even if it's just hundreds or thousands of dollars. Who, who, who says just thousands of dollars? Who writes this stuff? Transportation hubs are a particular point of focus for the, well, Huffington Post in this case, a particular point of focus for the Drug Enforcement Agency. A um, inspector general's report from last year found that for the preceding four years, the DEA seized almost $170 million in 4,000 individual cash seizures, many of which were later overturned. The agency has also come under fire in recent cases that involved agents seizing cash from airline and train passengers and in some cases allegedly shaking them down. 
The, o, the Office of Inspector General also called out the DEA for paying an Amtrak informant nearly $1 million over two decades to provide them with passenger information that was already available. Law enforcement officials regularly tout civil asset forfeiture as an important tool for fighting the drug trade because it allows them to go after property directly without any evidence of criminal behavior on the part of its owner. Drug traffickers, they say, are smart enough not to carry cash and contraband at the same time. It is not actually illegal to put a few thousand dollars into a checked bag. Tell that to the DEA. Officers will seize cash often solely based on this presumption and then work to build a case for permanent forfeiture. Law enforcement can win cases based on very weak evidence, according to federal guidelines. That often has the effect of leaving property owners with the burden of proving that their cash isn't related to criminal activity. This is your brain on the war on drugs. And it goes on. But uh, more from inspectors general. There is, as you may by now well know, a special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction. And he uh, testified this week. He uh, was testifying regarding the Defense Department's Task Force for Business and Stability Operations, which has an acronym TFBSO. That saves you a lot of time, and it's easy to pronounce. (laughs) The uh, testimony of the Inspector General is that uh, TFBSO's nearly $800 million investment in Afghanistan, close to a billion, has generally not delivered on its stated goals. Their activities were stymied by a lack of strategy, check, leadership, check, and coordination, check. The big three, three for three. A lack of strategic direction and inconsistent management resulted in a scattershot approach to economic development. This was an agency, a task force for business in the Defense Department. Think of it. Um... A scattershot approach to inter- economic development in which the task force invested in everything from importing rare blonde Italian goats, you may have read they were eaten, to uh, they were imported to bolster the cashmere industry, to landmine removal, to biofuel research, to funding large scale projects to support the development of extractive industries, about which we talked last week. Based on the agency's own economic assessment, assessment this inconsistent, unfocused approach has done little to spur economic growth in Afghanistan. The agency and its counterparts in Afghanistan, including the State Department and U.S. aid, failed to coordinate their activities in several critical sectors. This lack of coordination manifested itself in hundreds of millions of dollars worth of unfinished projects that, strangely enough, failed to deliver intended outcomes. Oh, you mean you have to finish them for them to work? Wow. Devil is in the details, all right. The closure of the agency now, according to the inspector general, has hindered oversight of task force activities and the ability of the Defense Department to respond to requests for information. Uh, Defense Department says that since Congress ended funding, the department does not have the expertise, authority, or funding to respond to investigations related to the agency's activities. This raises the question, says the inspector general, of whether the agency operated independent of any internal management and oversight. It's the Defense Department, seems a reasonable assumption, 
To date, the inspector general has not been able to find credible evidence showing that the agency's activities in Afghanistan produced the intended economic growth or stabilization outcomes that justified its creation. Its legacy in Afghanistan is marred by unfinished, poorly planned, and ill-conceived projects. News of Inspector General, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. You know that there has been controversy about CENTCOM, the uh, Central Command of the United States military, and whether they protest by intelligence analysts within CENTCOM that higher-ups have been doctoring the intelligence product uh, to make a rosier picture of the war in Afghanistan. That's still under investigation. But now, according to the AP, Afghan forces are struggling to man the front lines against the resurgent Taliban in part because of untold numbers of ghost troops. They're paid good salaries, but they only exist on paper. The nationwide problem has been particularly severe in southern Helmand province, where the Taliban have seized vast tracts of territory in the 12 months since the U.S. and NATO formally ended their combat mission. In some cases, the ghost designation is literal. Dead soldiers and police remain on the books, with senior police or army officials pocketing their salaries without replacing them. Some 40% of registered forces don't exist. The lack of manpower has helped the Taliban seize 65% of Helmand and threaten the provincial capital. Those men who do serve, of course, face even greater danger because of the no-shows. In the last three months alone, some 700 police officers have been killed, 500 wounded. The province's former deputy police chief says Helmand has 31,000 police officers on the register, but, quote, in reality, it is nowhere near that, unquote. That's how it looks from here. How does it look from there? From Afghanistan Public Radio, home of the bottomless pledge drive. From the abandoned American television truck in downtown Kabul, the city that works better when it's snowed in. <laughs> I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're Brick and Brack, the Never Broke Brothers. <laughs> and it's Cars I Talk. Welcome. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of Afghanacity. The game that helps your brain grow stronger by forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> so much to forget here. So little time. <laughs> <laughs> so, this week, my brother, mm. our friends in Pakistan suffered a bombing at the hands of their very own Taliban. Yes, my brother. But those were the bad Pakistani Taliban. Mm. Not like the nice Afghan Taliban the Pakistani government has been supporting since the cows had milk. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now our new government is talking to the Taliban. Oh, yes. But they're not talking to the bad Taliban. No, the Pakistanis are talking to them. The Pakistanis are hunting them down. Well, but if they became more like the nice Taliban... Oh, then the Pakistanis would help them hide... From the Pakistanis who are hunting them down. <laughs> <laughs> hello, you're on Karzai Talk. Uh, hello, sir. I'm Fazi Zula, long-time ghost soldier, first-time caller. Ooh, this would be our first ghost caller on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether to feel flattered or haunted. <laughs> <laughs> so, caller, when did you die? Uh, I'm not a real ghost. 
I'm in the army, but I don't fight. They call us ghost soldiers. Uh -huh. Yes, we understand all too well. Uh, tell me, caller, uh -huh. uh, how ever do you justify taking money to defend your country and then not doing it? Uh, well, let me ask uh, the former president, how ever did you defend taking money to run the country and then letting your brother do it? <laughs> <laughs> he needed customers for his Toyotas. We needed some kind of trucks. It seemed perfectly natural. <laughs> but now, caller, yes. if you're not actually doing, shall we say, army stuff with your time, how do you spend your days? Well, in the afternoons, mm -hmm. I try to gain uh, insight into my problems by watching uh, the Afghan uh, TV shrink, Dr. Zill. Ooh, I understand he gave up his shrink certificate so he could be more understanding. <laughs> <laughs> and what else, Caller? Uh, well, uh, I've begun teaching. Now, see, my older brother... Mm -hmm. Here is an example of a young Afghan repelled by constant war and constant killing who has decided to do something constructive with his life to help build the new Afghanistan of which we all dream. Thank you, Colin. Yeah. And by the way, what do you teach? I teach new recruits how to leave the army and keep getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> who knew ghosts were contagious? <laughs> <laughs> well, you learn something every year. Uh, Caller, do you have a question for us? It's part of our ghost format. <laughs> uh, yes, I do. iPhone or Android? Hmm. Well, let me ask you first of all. Uh -huh. uh, do you have access to a reliable supply of electricity to keep the unit charged? Uh, no. Uh, but I was uh, interested in it more as a fashion item. I mean, these days around Kabul, you, you, you look naked without one. Yes, and it's nothing worse than a naked ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. Ah, well, Hamid, at least you got to give your uplifting speech about Afghan youth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, he's already making a major contribution to this country. Him? How? By not leaving. <laughs> <laughs> hello, you're on cars, I talk. Uh, hello, this is uh, Colonel... Uh, uh, I guess you should uh, call me Colonel L, because... Because Colonel X would seem too obvious. <laughs> <laughs> well, a uh, long-time U.S. public affairs officer in the intel operations operation, uh, first-time caller. Uh, let's just leave it at that. Well, Colonel, welcome. If you've heard this program before, you know that any injection of intelligence is welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and and wildly out of format. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I suppose uh, you fellows have uh, seen the reporting about possibly some uh, political interference in the intel assessments of our success in the war that we're partnered with you folks in. Yes, yes, I've heard vaguely about that. About the political interference? No, about the success. <laughs> <laughs> well, sir, I just wanted to blow some straight smoke right into the heart of all that, and I uh, I know you folks have a, a very important listenership. Oh, yes. We're, we're like Al Jazeera America. Mm -hmm. Nobody listens to us, and they're very influential. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, sir. Uh, uh, political interference, sir, as in the uh, battle days, uh, that happened when politically motivated individuals would gain uh, midstream access to an intelligence product and uh, somehow edit or fashion it to uh, fit a, a personal political agenda. Mm, sounds like a good plan to me. <laughs> you and Dick Cheney. <laughs> uh, but modern uh, CENTCOM intelligence, uh, once it's entered into the system, never again is touched by uh, human hands. How about human eyes? <laughs> if we're lucky. Uh, the intel data is merely smoothed through an algorithm.
algorithm which uh, filters out outlier data, low probability items, mm -hmm. based on a cross-check with other similar data mm -hmm. and within policy guidelines that are baked into the filter. Ooh. I could go for a nice warm baked filter right about now. <laughs> Stop. So, Colonel. Yes, sir. If what you say is true. Yes, sir. And this war is as successful as the Pentagon keeps saying it is. Yes, sir. How come it keeps going on? Oh, sir, that's an easy one, sir. Uh, success is a process, not just a result. You forgot the sir at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Sir, but uh, so I, I hope that reassures your listener. I, I mean, listeners, <laughs> that the uh, folks at CENTCOM take accuracy in reporting intel up and out occasionally uh, as a goal always to be worked towards the achievement of, sir. In other words, accuracy is a process, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. Uh. We had help today from the Kabul Airbnb Society. Kabul. We're the city that wants Airbnb. <laughs> Legal services for cars I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Nukem. I'm Mahmoud. I'm Hamid. Join us next time for another non-rerun edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Zach Efron has apologized for linking the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. to his soaring Instagram follower count. It was a uh, he shared an Instagram photo that included the caption, "I'm grateful for a couple things today: Martin Luther King Jr. and 10 million followers on Instagram." I realized that last night's post was completely insensitive. I apologize to anyone who may, uh, whom I may have offended," he said. He shared the message with a photo of himself mugging in a convertible at sunset. That was the in the original message. He also included two darker-toned icons from Apple's new racially diverse emoji library. Twitter users Im immediately accused the dirty grandpa star of insensitively equating King's triumph with his own social media success. Dr. King wasn't murdered so you could use black emojis and troll for Instagram followers, said one. But he's apologized. Dayline Washington, Mayor... Muriel Bowser apologized for the inadequate response to Wednesday night's storm. He issued a state of emergency for the District of Columbia. We're sorry for an inadequate response. We did not provide the resources, and we should have been out there earlier, she stated. I think that's just a template in the uh, Washington, D.C. Public Affairs Office to issue the, uh, that apology after a snowstorm. Dayline, St. Paul, Minnesota. St. Paul Police Sergeant Jeff Rothaker released a statement Wednesday apologizing for his Facebook comments, which had urged drivers to run over Black Lives Matter protesters. Quote, I'm extremely sorry for posting what I did. I understand the post was insensitive and wrong. My poor choice of words conveyed a message I did not intend and am not proud of. Shortly after submitting the post, I reread it and deleted it. As a law enforcement officer, I would never intentionally encourage anyone to commit a crime. I very much regret my actions. I apologize to all the citizens of St. Paul, the department, my fellow law enforcement professionals, and my family. I apologize for exposing all law enforcement officers to increased scrutiny during this difficult time. I apologize to the community members who participated peacefully in the protest. Unquote, Sergeant Rothaker. The apology was released through the St. Paul Police Federation, which said they do not endorse his behavior and will ensure that Rothaker receives due process. He's been put on administrative leave. 
The police federation said he has many supporters in the community and among his fellow officers, and he served in the army. Miss Australia, Monica Rodulovich, has apologized after she made a statement that the top three Miss Universe contestants, quote, weren't very nice. She said Miss USA, Miss Colombia, and Miss Philippines were okay, but under a lot of pressure during the competition. After the statement, Radulovich was then bombarded by hate messages on social media. She immediately apologized through her Instagram account and explained she wasn't given enough time to bond with the three finalists. Yeah, I blame Miss Universe for not building enough bonding time into the whole process. From the Herald News, Wicked Fall River, Fall River, Massachusetts, sorry. Quote, last week we published a story about a young man from Tiverton, Rhode Island, who reportedly saved another man from committing suicide. We email the email we received from the man he saved, which tipped us off to the story, was incredibly heartfelt and rather detailed. Problem is, it was a lie, so to our readers, we apologize. We assumed they were telling us the truth. We should never assumed. We put in the work to verify the claims made by politicians and others in official com- positions. But in a story like this, we didn't. And that's on us. We have learned an important lesson says the editor of the Fall River Herald News. Buy one now. Turkey's state-run news agency has reported that British authorities apologized to visiting Turkish Prime Minister Ahmet Davulu for protest staged in London while he was holding an official meeting with his British counterpart, Prime Minister David Cameron, earlier this month. The British Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills, Sajid Javid, visited Davulu at the hotel where he was staying during his two-day visit to London to apologize about the protests, says the Turkish agency. A bunch of supporters of the outlined Kurdistan Workers' Party had chanted slogans in favor of the group in front of Downing Street while the prime ministers were holding talks. Yes, a British prime minister has apologized for protests in London to a Turkish prime minister. And we think, Americans kowtow? Just in case you hadn't already noticed, the town of Flint, Michigan, is enduring a major water crisis. Michigan's Governor Rick Snyder this week apologized for his administration's failures. During the State of the State address, he said he was sorry and that he would fix it. You deserve better. You deserve accountability. You deserve to know the buck stops here with me. Most of all, you deserve to know the truth, says Snyder. And CNN anchor Jake Tapper says, I'm sorry it took us so long to get on this story. Twin apologies, ladies and gentlemen. Think of it. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Yes, I mentioned Donald Trump earlier. Of course, the big news this week was that he got an endorsement from former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin. Still building that bridge to nowhere. Or maybe it's to a gold-plated White House. When I'm asleep, you're in every dream. But can you be as grand as you seem? You span the miles. Why? a journey but where do you go 
gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the U.S. and 440 cable system at Pan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived, whenever you want it, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast. Oh, SoundShow, SoundCloud, MixCloud, SideShow Network, 
iTunes, WWNO.org. And it'd be just like Sarah Palin endorsing everybody, just to get more airtime. If you'd agree to join with me then. Would you? Alrighty. Thank you very much. Uh huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and San Diego in exile for this week, too. Chicago in exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny, the world-famous Jenny Lawson here at WWNO in New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, playlist of the music heard here on, and your opportunity to buy Cars I Talk t-shirts, for real, all at harryshare.com. And speaking of uh, SoundCloud... If uh, if you were one of the people who heard the show live last week and heard that, that series of really irritating interruptions in the uh, love song Rupert Murdoch sang to uh, Jerry Hall, uh, it's it's up on SoundCloud. Just go to SoundCloud and uh, look up Harry Shearer and Refined Sugar. It's there, and it's not interrupted, strangely enough. It just goes straight through. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions. Oh, I'm, and I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. Happy Carnival from New Orleans. <laughs>